What would it look like in a world where those diagnosed with schizophrenia are not given the help they need but instead dismissed as possessed? What if we thought those dealing with this mental illness were being rightfully punished for neglecting their religious duties? What if we still turn to the archaic, brutal, and inhumane process of bloodletting as a form of treatment? At one point in time, these weren't what ifs. This was our reality. We now know schizophrenia to be a mental illness best managed through medication and therapy. Rewind back a few centuries and our understanding of this illness was a foggy, muddled version of reality. In its antiquity, we believed this disorder to be a punishment from the gods. Our misunderstanding of the term can be seen as early and as large scale as the Bible. In the Old Testament, King Saul became mad after neglecting his religious duties and angering God. After playing some tunes on the harp, he was magically cured and the evil spirit departed him. After it was discovered that music did not in fact cure the disorder, 20th century psychiatrists turned to methods like fever therapy, yet another example of a dated and dangerous approach to treatment. Fevers were induced through sulfur or oil injections. Other methods like sleep therapy, gas therapy, electroshock treatment, and forced sterilization all began to ingrain the stigma surrounding mental illness. The term schizophrenia was coined in 1910 by the Swiss psychiatrist Paul Eugen Bleuler and is derived from the Greek word schizo, translating to split, and friend, translating to mind. Since then, we've come a long way in understanding what this disorder is and how it is managed effectively. To truly understand what schizophrenia is, a brief textbook definition is in order. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, schizophrenia is a chronic and severe mental disorder that affects how a person thinks, feels, and behaves. Often, individuals who have schizophrenia may feel like they are not in touch with reality. Some symptoms include delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, disorganized or catatonic behavior and negative symptoms. This long-term illness affects about 1% of Americans. Although it can occur at any age, the average age of onset tends to be in the late teens to early 20s for men and the late 20s to early 30s for women. Research suggests several possible causes, including genetics, environment, brain chemistry, and substance use. There is no cure for schizophrenia, but that's not to say those affected by it cannot live a normal functional life. Schizophrenia must be managed throughout the entirety of an individual's life. Typically, a patient with schizophrenia will require psychosocial therapy as well as regular medication. With treatment, people can go on to live a healthy, productive, and normal life. Antipsychotic medications, psychotherapy, and self-management strategies and education are all ways that, when used in conjunction, can help keep symptoms at bay. The earlier that schizophrenia is diagnosed and treated, the better the outcome of the person and the better the recovery. Schizophrenia in popular culture has become more prevalent as our understanding of the disorder has progressed. Think A Beautiful Mind, the movie chronicling the life of famed economist and mathematician John Nash. John Nash is the only person to be awarded both the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences and the Abel Prize. His life was defined by one ingenuity. His mental illness became a defining part of his life as well. He struggled with mental illness and spent several years out of the academic limelight as he received treatment for paranoid schizophrenia. His story was one of the first steps in popular culture that displayed schizophrenia as something that could be managed, a living contradiction to the term feeble-minded when referencing the mental ill. It can be argued that perspectives like these have helped shape the public opinion, educate people further, and reduce stigma. It could also be argued, though, that these films portray individuals as overly hysterical, unpredictable, and dangerous. A study conducted by Dubit Fink in 1992 reported that those who suffer from schizophrenia felt rejected by society because of the negative representations of mental illness in movies. Another study conducted in 2012 found that over 80% of main characters with schizophrenia in films displayed violent behavior and nearly a third engaged in homicidal behavior. When these characters aren't being portrayed as a dark, twisted antagonist, they are often the subject of misplaced humor. Think of the show Orange is the New Black. The show includes a mentally ill character named Crazy Eyes. 
As the name suggests, she is meant to be a funny character. But what's funny about a mentally ill character trapped in her own delusions and without access to medication, in prison for something she did during a manic episode that she cannot remember? If this is what they meant by dark humor, then they were right. It's very dark. So do these movies reinforce the stereotype that schizophrenics are dangerous? Or do they attempt to shed light on a disorder in hopes of normalizing it? Hi, welcome to Trauma. I'm Amanda. Not to be inflicted upon you now through the headphones, just like some interesting cool psychology stuff about it. So what exactly is trauma? Well, no research was really done on defining this, but off the top of my head, I'd say it's something shitty and painful and not something that happens to you every day because part of its power is its rareness. So if it's so awful, how do you limit the effects of a traumatic event? Well, regardless of your gender, try not to ruminate over the event. Seems obvious, right? Thanks, psychology. But here's where it gets interesting. Ruminating leads to more intrusive memories for males than females, at least according to one study. Another interesting study happened in New York after the events of 9-11. Researchers recruited people living near or in New York City when it all went down in the VIP Freedom Room. People were separated by their different levels of exposure to the trauma of the event. There was a pretty hopeful note to come out of this. And I quote, Resilience was prevalent even among the most highly exposed individuals. But another reality check caveat, these people still had less resilience on average than the less exposed. Still better some than none. One of the most interesting associations out there is how you recall the traumatic event affects its level of trauma on you. If you recall it as an outside observer, like if you were watching a movie that you think is a documentary of your life or of the event and you're the one being followed, well, people who remember it like that, sort of of out-of-body experience style, end up having a lot more psychological problems. It's associated with more intense PTSD symptoms and doubles the probability of still having PTSD a year later. Because of the nature of the research, we cannot randomly assign groups and therefore cannot determine causation. We can't just drop people into the fam- your family dies in a car accident you were driving condition and the next guy into the your family doesn't die you just got ice cream condition because apparently that would be unethical. To help mitigate some of the effects from traumatic events, try to remember that traumatic event as if was a first-person shooter-style video game. I wonder if replaying Dead Space would be less scary in first-person mode if there was one. I have a feeling it's not. A final interesting finding, and about as close as traumatic as scientists are allowed to put their participants into a trauma group, was watching a 12-minute trauma film consisting of 11 different scenes involving actual or threatened death as well as serious injury. The interesting finding here was that there were less intrusive memories of the film and its serial killer wet dream scenes for those who played Tetris compared to those who didn't. The study is careful in its interpretation, saying computer games can lessen intrusive recall of negative memories. So, maybe video games aren't all bad, but presumably it'll take more experiments and replication and all of that to make this not just speculation. But video games provide positive experiences where you can lose a sense of self and can heal, and that seems to lead to less intrusive negative recall. What's nice for some is it doesn't even have to involve other people. You're welcome, Tumblr people. But most important, you're not doomed to remember awful shit from that awful time all the time. Deal with tasks that require focus, especially those visual-spatial video games, sports, dance, art, and things that lose your sense of self, and escape some of the trauma that life throws at you, or at least be a little less scathed. 
My name is Needy, and welcome back everyone to the Secret Menu Project. In this episode, we will be covering self-harm and suicide. These topics are heavy and have affected many people. During our time together, remember to check up on yourself. Pause the podcast if needed. This can be activating or triggering, and we want you to be safe. So, let's dive in. Topic 1. Self-harm. Self-harm. When you think of self-harm, what is the first thing you picture? Is it the stereotype of a sad emo kid who hates the world? Well, for me, a popular media image would be the character of Sky Miller from the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why, a pessimistic loner girl who never seems to have many friends and is always on the outskirts. But these images, which have been portrayed throughout the media for years, perpetuate a two-dimensional view of self-harm. Self-harm is more than this. There are various forms and various reasons behind self-harm. For this segment, we will be discussing the forms of self-harm, the statistics, and the signs. So the most common form of self-harm is cutting. Around 70 to 90% of individuals use this as a form of self-harm. But there are other forms of self-harm which are not spoken about as often. Self-harm isn't only cutting, or burning, or hitting. It can be seen in the misuse of drugs or alcohol, skipping meals, sleep deprivation, putting oneself in dangerous situations or relationships. It isn't always easy to spot, but there are signs which can help you see if someone is self-harming. Concealing wounds with long sweaters or sleeves, relationship problems, problems in school or work, lower self-esteem. But what can you do? What happens if you notice these things? Support them. Reach out. Self-harm can be a language of pain, a way to express how these individuals are coping with their trauma, their relationships, their emotions, their pain. It's not always easy to reach out to others when you are hurting. In fact, many who self-harm experience feelings of shame, guilt, and disgust after self-harming. Just another obstacle when trying to seek support. So it is crucial that we reach out to the 4% of adults, the 15% of adolescents, and the 17-35% to of college students who self-harm. Creating an environment of acceptance and support can be a way for you yes you dear listener to be a part of the healing process for these individuals to decrease the stigma and judgment felt by people who carry these scars compassion can be the key to shifting the view of the stories of these scars from pain to acceptance and acceptance to ambivalence
So what happens when self-harm isn't non-suicidal? In this segment, we find out what happens when there is intent of completing suicide. And just a reminder to check in on where you are physically, mentally. Remember to practice a little self-care before we delve into this subject. Suicide in our society is a taboo topic. But why? Here is a recording explaining Amy's take on this question. So why is suicide a taboo topic? A taboo topic? Mm -hmm. Because it's something that you're doing upon doing to yourself, mm. um, and I know I guess I like I know it's a taboo topic, but I can't really explain why. Besides that, it, like I don't know if you're going to be asking like what my thoughts are for suicide, but Whatever like you. for me, like mm. I think suicide is a very selfish thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I also not many people talk about it and you don't really see it happening. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's why it would be taboo. Some main points to focus on here are suicide is selfish. No one talks about it. You don't see it happening. This is powerful because for many, this is their belief. But let's break it down. When someone completes suicide, the pain left behind is immense. But what are we going to focus on? We're going to focus on what leads a person to suicide. When talking about this topic, we want to first reflect on our own positionality. Where do we fit in this world? Gender sexuality, race and ethnicity, ability, socioeconomic status. What are our privileges and what are the oppressions we face? For example, I am an Indian woman in an environment where my gender and race are both of a minority status. Now what are the positions of others? specifically those more vulnerable to completing or attempting suicide. Let's look at some statistics. The following demographics have the highest prevalence of suicide. Males age 65 and above. Females age 45 to 54. American Indian slash Alaskan Native. LGBTQ kids are three times more likely than heterosexual kids to attempt suicide at some point in their lives. This rate increases to eight times more likely if they come from rejecting families. They are also four times more likely to have medically serious attempts than heterosexual youths. African American, Latino, Native American, and Asian Americans who are LGBTQ attempt suicide at significantly higher rates. 41% of transgender adults have reported attempting suicide. 
61% of transgender people who said they were victims of physical assault had attempted suicide. Approximately 75% of suicides occur in low- and middle-income countries, where rates of poverty are high. These are more than numbers. They are people who face systemic barriers to their wellness on a daily basis. Let's imagine. You are a black transgender man from a low socioeconomic status in his mid-forties with a disability. Consider all the barriers you have to face. Economic, educational, health care, support systems, relationships, politics, transportation, accessibility, discrimination, citizenship. Now, think of how strong someone would have to be to endure that level of oppression with minimal mental health resources. That is a reality for many. All these systems affect a person's wellness. They change the way they will maneuver to, through life. They impact everyone's well-being. These factors are what can lead to contemplating, attempting, or completing suicide. So, why don't we see it? Why don't we talk about it? Well, we just did. In this podcast. In this segment. Notice where you have been oppressed. Notice where you have privilege. What barriers do you face? What barriers can you help others face? By listening to this podcast, you have educated yourself. You have talked about suicide. You've seen the statistics of what is happening. It is your turn now. Keep educating yourself and others. Take the initiative to keep talking, to keep searching and opening your eyes to see. This has been The Secret Menu Project. Until next time. Drugs. They're all around us. They're in your medicine chest. They're in your liquor cabinet. They're lining the aisles of your local drugstore. Drugs are manufactured to improve our lives, treat illnesses, and increase our lifespan. But not all drugs are created equal. Some drugs are created with malicious intent. Regulated under the Title 21 United States Code Controlled Substances Act, drugs are separated into five categories called schedules which are based on the substance's approved medical use, potential for abuse, and safety or dependence liability. Schedule 1 drugs are considered to have the highest potential for abuse and are believed to foster severe psychological and or physiological dependence. Drugs included in Schedule 1 are heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and wait for it, marijuana? How dated is this system, you ask? It's 48 years old, past when Richard Nixon was in office. It's becoming more apparent with time, the marijuana has various medicinal uses and should probably hang a little lower on the classification rungs. Maybe a Schedule 3, which houses Tylenol and Codeine, or even a Schedule 4, which includes Xanax and Ambien. You know what is considered by the Controlled Substances Act to have medicinal use, however? Cocaine. Yeah. It's a Schedule 2, 
But I digress. Drugs are highly regulated, and the industry is booming, both legally and illicitly. So what happens when drug use is no longer casual and it starts to consume your life? Hi, my name is Cameron. Um, I'm 21, and I go to the University of Florida. Um, my major is computer science, and I am an alcoholic. Um, I got sober at the age of 19 after my first full semester fall of 2016. Um, it has taught me a different way of life. You know, it is hard, but there's this stereotype that alcoholics or addicts need to be homeless or you need to be a certain age. And I like to share my story because you can get sober whenever you want to get sober if you think it's a problem. It was getting in the way of my dreams, my family, I was ruining friendships, and ruined plenty of friendships. And you know, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous like almost daily still, and it's been almost two years. Um, really, you know what? I said at first, why me? But no, I'm thankful. You know, I've really learned a lot about myself and I'm just happy to help someone else and just keep doing the next right thing because that's the only thing I can do. Um, and I'm actually thankful to be an alcoholic. Thank you. Addiction is a powerful, all-consuming force defined as a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. We've all been affected by it or know somebody who has. It impacts family dynamics. An act is almost certainly the center of attention in a family, not only changing the roles individual members play, but also influencing family rituals, routines, finances, communication, disputes, and social interactions. Much like mental illness, addiction is highly stigmatized. It's not uncommon for an addict to be perceived as someone who just doesn't try hard enough to improve their circumstances. In fact, parents of addicts may seek alternate explanations for their child's behavior, finding mental illness preferable to drug or alcohol addiction. Is it that simple though? Studies have indicated that substance dependence is rooted in genetics. In fact, children of addicts are eight times more likely to develop an addiction than children of non-addicts. The cause of addiction is evidenced to be a 50-50 combination of genetic predisposition and poor coping skills. Predisposed people aren't destined to become addicts, however. Cultivating good coping skills makes a tremendous impact on individual outcomes. Controlled substances aren't the only objects of addiction. People could become addicted to a number of unconventional things. Teresa, as featured in TLC's My Strange Addiction, is addicted to eating rocks. The earthy smell of the rocks drew her in until, at the time of the show's recording, she was eating two pounds of rocks per day. What drives people to eat weird things or obsessively engage in strange behaviors? In Teresa's case, she exhibited signs of behavior defined as PICA. PICA is the actor habit of consuming inedible things, such as rocks, chalk, soap, or dirt. It is not uncommon in babies, but adults may exhibit these behaviors as well. PICA is believed to be the result of a mineral deficiency, such as minerals like iron, zinc, or calcium, though there are other theories regarding the causes. Addiction can lead to reckless behaviors, including self-endangerment and crime, but the costs of substance abuse aren't limited to the abuser. Substance abuse also drains our nation's financial resources, with over $600 billion annually spent on healthcare, crime, and incarceration. Treatment for drug addiction has proven to reduce healthcare costs and social costs by far more than the cost of the actual treatment. For example, incarcerating one person for a year costs approximately $24,000, while the equivalent year of a methadone treatment is only $4,700 per patient. Addiction destroys families, it leads to illness, criminality, and it also imposes a huge financial burden on the country. We stigmatize it as a poor choice when there is vast research supporting genetic predisposition. 
Maybe it's time to treat addicts on par with those suffering from physical ailments. Maybe it's time to look at this whole addiction thing differently. Think about that the next time that you meet an addict.